One of the things we like to do on Chicago Media Talks is introduce you to people whose bylines may be new to you, but whose work is increasingly remaking the news landscape. We have a couple of prime examples on this edition. One is a rising star at the Chicago Tribune. We're in, we're in a time of big change, even if you're not paying attention to individual races. There's a wider scheme going on here that's going to be very interesting to watch for the next few years, maybe five or ten. The other? Maybe the most influential political endorser you have yet to discover. I want to meet people where they're at and not mince words. You know, if I think somebody running for office is a slimy fuckface, I'm going to call them a slimy fuckface because there's no reason not to. Our guests this time out are A.D. Quigg, a veteran of Crane Chicago Business, The Daily Line, and, yes, Rivet, now covering Cook County Government, City Hall, and the Obama Presidential Center for the Tribune, and Stephanie Scora, who describes herself this way, a snarky Jewish dyke with a nose for politics, and the writer-editor of the Girl I Guess Progressive Voter Guide. I'm Charlie Myerson with Rivet 360, and this is Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago media. Joining me is my co-host, my friend, and Rivet 360 colleague, Sheila Solomon. Stephanie, you describe yourself as born in a deeply conservative suburb. Which one? Uh, I was born in Palatine. I was actually the first member of my family in about 120 years to be born outside the city limits of Chicago. And why do you call yourself a radical queer and a religious anarchist? Uh, well, I am a radical and I am a queer, uh, but the ideological bent that I subscribe myself most to is uh, is anarchism. I, uh, I am an anarchist uh, and I come to my anarchism through Judaism, through my Jewish religion. Uh, anarchism is actually very deeply based in... Uh, you know, in, in Jewish practice, in Jewish religion. Um, and I come to it by way of my deep connectedness with my Jewish ethnicity and my Jewish culture, but also as a practicing uh, religious Jew. Adi, how'd you get interested in journalism? Uh, I got interested in politics first, I think. Um, at a pretty young age, I think around 12, I started watching Meet the Press with Tim Russert uh, every Sunday morning and just thought he was so quick and smart and funny and charming. And so I kind of grew up wanting to be Tim Russert. And then I amended that want to be his executive producer uh, who helped make him so smart and didn't have to be on camera or in front, in front of much of anything. I wanted to be like the smart person helping the host get smarter. Um, so I went to J school thinking maybe I wanted to write for Time Magazine or cover politics in some way so I could work my way up to helping Tim Russert and instead got diverted into really wanting to do uh, public radio by a professor who had worked in and around uh, the NPR sphere for many years. So somehow I ended up at the Tribune from there, but on my way, I met Charlie. You're jumping ahead. We'll come back <laughs> to that later. Spoilers. 80, your Tribune beat, Cook County Government, City Hall, and the Obama Presidential Center. It used to be a job for three, six 10 people in Sheila's and my time at the Tribune. How do you juggle all of that? Well, it oddly, I've only been at the, the Tribune for like a month and a half, but it feels like I have so much more time to cover stuff because I used to be at Cranes where there were only two people covering politics, uh, which is insane. And now I'm on a team of uh, c close to a dozen. So I feel like I have actually a lot of pressure off of my shoulders for as many beats as I have. Um, I'm not the greatest 
time manager. Uh, God bless editors who help me <laughs> prioritize stuff, but it drives me nuts that uh, there's so many smaller stories uh, in the grand scheme that I think are still important to be written down somewhere uh, that no one really has the time or bandwidth to cover. It kind of breaks my heart, especially when you think of the Tribune being kind of um, the, the first draft of history. And they, unless the Tribune prints it, it's not news. I think of all the news that we're missing out on just because the bandwidth isn't there. The team isn't as big as it used to be. One of the hardest jobs in journalism now is deciding what not to do. Mm-hmm. Because there is so much, and those of us who are practicing it aren't as numerous as we used to be. Stephanie, your bio is so multifaceted. The hats that you wear are so numerous. How do you manage all of them in a day? That's a very good question. I think it's a lot of really carefully regimenting my time. You know, I think um, one of the most interesting parts about the work that I do is keeping all of my different hats on separate parts of my head. Uh, it is uniquely difficult to be a nonprofit executive and a person who does the opposite of 501c3 work uh, together in my day-to-day life. Uh, and I think it's it's a lot about just making sure that when I'm doing one, I'm not doing the other, and that they don't cross paths in any meaningful legal way. Uh, but otherwise, you know, my life is... Uh, full of people and full of opportunities to engage meaningfully in politics in the way that promotes the interests of my own community and the connections that I make in politics and the good that I'm able to do in politics, I'm able to bring over into my day job uh, and help the folks that uh, Brave Space Alliance works for. Looking back at the recent primary results, what jumps out at you? Oh man. I mean, in the, the 30,000 foot view is that we are in a really interesting and weird time in local politics in the wake of so many power players uh, falling by the wayside and getting indicted. Um, I was watching relatively closely uh, how strong the state house and state Senate supermajorities would be held on. Um, We're beginning to see a lot of drama with the democratic party of Illinois and who is going to lead it. Um, at the Cook County level, we are now in the in a post-Barrios era. So I've been watching closely how Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle would do as the new head of the party and how uh, how reformers, people that ran as reformers in 2018, 2019, uh, did. So I was most closely following how Assessor Fritz Kagey did, which is not the most uh, sexy position in all of Cook County government. But in terms of politics, it was really fascinating to see um, how he would do, whether uh, the business class would show up and back his challenger, and whether um, people were satisfied with with how far he took reforms. But like I mentioned, the 30,000 foot view, we are in like a grand political reshuffling locally, post Madigan, post Barrios, uh, to a lesser extent, but this will show up in 2023, like a post Burke and a lot of uh, establishment Democrats uh, kind of running things. And in that wake, there's this vacuum with a bunch of different people trying to fill it. Um, Lori Lightfoot, J.B. Pritzker, Chris Welch, um, groups of progressives, which I, I want to hear more from Stephanie about, um, banding together to kind of form new political machines to help each other get elected. Um, we're, in, we're in a time of big change, even if you're not paying attention to individual races, it's kind of playing out on on a on a wider uh, there's a wider scheme going on here that's going to be very interesting to watch for the next 
few years, maybe five or 10. Stephanie, what jumps out at you? Yeah, you know, I think really some of those same things that AD is talking about, where we are very much in the middle of an internal realignment in the Democratic Party, in Illinois, in Cook County, in the city of Chicago, where these big names are falling or are openly declaring that maybe they don't have much time left in public office. Um, And this new, young, diverse crop of electeds is really stepping up and filling some of these seats. I mean, we've got an open socialist who's going to get elected to the county board. I'm not actually sure if uh, Anthony Quesada has a challenger in November, but if he has a challenger, the district is so blue that it doesn't really matter. So we're going to have our first socialist on the county board. We've got more than 10% of the city council openly socialist. We've got LGBTQ people, black and brown people, um, various like all sorts of people are taking up positions of power outside of the traditional machine. And at the same time, we're seeing these new progressive machines being built. Chuy Garcia, for example, is building his mustache machine uh, very, very strong um, on, you know, a- across the city. He's run a number of candidates. He's done very, very well in running a number of those candidates. And he seems to have, uh, last month, really won that battle for Latino machine supremacy over Iris Martinez, almost all of whose candidates uh, were pretty soundly defeated uh, in their elections, many of them against Chewy-backed candidates. So we're in this moment of leftward turn and progressive realignment, and at the same time, infrastructure building. All these new independent and progressive electeds are going to have to either they're going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to decide, do they sign up for one of these machine structures or do they continue to be independent? And what will that mean for them going forward? How do we get out the vote? What, what are these politicians to do about that? What do, you, what do you see as you look to November? I take the voter turnout from June with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, it was an off-cycle election. It was in a different time than people expect it to be. I mean, Chicago is March, St. Patrick's Day elections are hammered into the political consciousness of Chicago. So to have that election happen three and a half months later certainly was part of the suppression of voter turnout. You know, the entire electoral machine, despite having brought this problem on itself, was not prepared for a June election. And so I think that's part of it. Um, I think the other part is people know that their votes don't count as much uh, in November in Chicago. But I don't think that they've made the connection that their votes count more because of that in March or in the primary election. You know, we live in this deep, deep blue major metropolis where the primary election for most of these seats, until you start looking out at the county and the suburbs, the primary is the election. And there are so many people who are systemically disenfranchised and there are so many people who have fallen victim to voter apathy that I think part of what we're going to see is an uptick in voter turnout as this new slate of progressive electeds takes and holds office. The community is finally getting representatives that look like them, that believe like them, that serve their actual interests. And so I think we're going to see some increase in voter turnout because of that. But also, this is a nationwide problem. Voter turnout is down and has been down across this country. And I think people are really just tired of elections and politics and politicians and government not doing the common sense things that people think that they should be doing to 
preserve the world that we live in. Amy, what do you think about that question? I agree with Stephanie that there was a lot of weirdness uh, in this primary. Uh, Having it in June, very late, is out of routine. Um, Midterm between presidential election turnouts is pretty low. Um, The reason it was so high here back in 2018 is because we had a pretty heavily contested gubernatorial race and people wanted to vote in that. So unless there's kind of like a top tier issue that kind of turns people out, it's difficult to get the general population interested. I'm I'm very concerned that this will carry over in the mayoral election. Um, I hope people are super engaged and turned up and excited about all 80,000 people that are going to be running for mayor of Chicago. It won't be as bad as 19, but there'll still be a lot of people running. Um, but what behooves um, groups like Stephanie is engaged with is the most dedicated, usually progressive folks who are most animated about politics are the ones that turn out. So it ends up uh, low turnout elections can be good for um, the most fired up voters actually getting their getting their folks on the ballot in contested stuff. And they can come out on top uh, by only a, a few votes in a lot of these cases, just because there are people who are uh, excited to vote for that candidate that is endorsed by the mustache machine. As we speak, lots of buzz about Governor Pritzker running for president in 2024. Those links are often the most clicked in Chicago Public Square email. What do you say, AD? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Not so much asking as a prediction, because I hope we've all learned that predictions are yes of little value. But looking at the landscape now, what do you make of this? I think people are hungry for, Democrats in particular are hungry for other names to run against Joe Biden, especially when his polling is lagging as badly as it is now. Um, People like to, people like the guessing game. People like the speculation. And uh, I hope people take a close look at his record, what he's accomplished and not accomplished here in Illinois before they run too far with this stuff. I feel like once the name gets out there and presidential speculation gets out there, people only talk about the speculation and the name and don't talk enough about the record. Uh, All right. Well, let's talk about the record. What what do you what do you see, or what do you think others will or should see? I think uh, I'm interested to hear what Stephanie thinks about this and how. What I hear from a lot of progressives is that they are pleasantly surprised with what Governor Pritzker has accomplished so far. Um, I hear uh, the cannabis legalization stuff, and when you read about that, or when you see him talking about it in a tweet, also take into account that there have been a lot of problems with the equity provisions of this cannabis law. Take that into account. Um, His handling of COVID, uh, he's gotten plus marks for, even from fiscal watchdogs. Uh, We've gotten a bunch of bond upgrades. Our budget is not in as bad a shape as it once was. Uh, If you're, if you're into personalities, uh, if you've watched the way that Lori Lightfoot has engaged with uh, folks who probably should be her political collaborators, a lot of people are pleased with the way that um, the governor has played ball. Uh, He's, he's pretty good at reaching consensus with folks. We'll see if he maintains that reputation as he begins to kind of meddle in the, the state democratic party. But I don't want people to forget about um, where he's where he's fallen short in the in the social services. We had the COVID outbreak at the LaSalle Veterans Home. We've had months and months and months of problems with the Department of Child and Family Services, um, with the current leader being held in contempt numerous times for uh, placement of children who are most in need. So I, 
I urge people always to look beyond uh, what tweets uh, the governor is putting out any day of the week. Uh, he's going to be playing up uh, his commitment to abortion rights here in Illinois, which is deserved. We have we have pretty strong protections for abortion here, and also his uh, Climate Jobs Act, trying to get the state on an all green economy. I believe by 2050. But yeah, I, I would urge people not just to talk about the speculation, but to really dig into what matters to you as a voter and look at his record rather than the fact that his name is being repeated over and over as a possible presidential contender. Yeah, you know, I'm very much in the same vein as AD on that one. I think, you know, Pritzker very clearly has secured the title of best governor of my lifetime in the state of Illinois. Um, that being said, the man is not perfect. You know, with all the social services issues that AD has mentioned, his COVID rollout uh, and his his handling of COVID was uh, was good, certainly better than a lot of other governors, but not as good as it could have been. Um, you know, we've got some issues in downstate areas. There's a campaign right now called No Am or uh, No Ameren Shutoffs, uh, where the governor has the power to issue a shutoff moratorium for utility companies, and he has declined to do so for Ameren, which is a company that services a lot of south, uh, a lot of southern Illinois and south central Illinois. Uh, so people are having their power shut off during COVID in the middle of the winter. You know, folks are folks are suffering, and the governor has not stepped up with that. Um, but I think, you know, credit where credit is due, JB has been doing a really great job as governor of the state of Illinois. Um, and he has been doing a very good job legislatively of making sure that his the campaign promises that he ran on are the things that he's actually fighting for. And he's actually putting his own skin in the game. He's making sure that his priorities, his promises, he at least tries to get them done. That all being said, I really don't want him to run for president. I think one of the things that JB takes for granted a little bit if he actually is running for president is the fact that he has a supermajority democrat progressive legislature um the fact that he's able to get so much stuff done as governor is largely dependent upon the fact that he has a legislator that's a uh, legislature that's willing to play along and that's willing to play ball and that's willing to sign up for some of these more progressive and more strident ideas on the federal level that's never happening it's not possible the senate is permanently fucked um, the house is the house. Uh, the federal government just isn't set up for governance in a lot of ways. And JB, if he finds himself in the white house is going to be very, very hard pressed to get any of his priorities accomplished. Uh, he will not have people who are willing to play ball with him and he won't have Republicans that he's just going to be able to ignore like he does in the general assembly. Um, I think he does a really great job as the governor of the state of Illinois. I hope he stays the governor of the state of Illinois I hope he does not run for president because that's a different job. And I don't think that that's where he's going to do the best one. Stephanie, I confess I hadn't heard of the girl, I guess, progressive voter guide until this last primary when our ace producer for this show, Jesse Batend, raved about it and told me all the cool kids were reading it. So <laughs> let's begin with that name. Girl, comma, I guess. Explain the name and the comma. Yeah, so it's really um, so the guide was started by myself and my friend Ellen Mayer, uh, who is also a veteran of journalism, um, formerly of Southside Weekly, among some other places. Uh, we started it together in 2018, in the 2018 primary, uh, and the idea was to change the title every time. Um, but in the 2018 general election, we called it "Girl, I Guess" uh, because neither of us were particularly enthusiastic about. Uh, Pritzker's gubernatorial run, although he has surprised both of us. Uh, and we did it as sort of this homage to uh, black women on Twitter saying, girl, I guess I'm with her. 
for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Those were sort of the feelings that we had about J.B. Pritzker. Um, and wouldn't you know it, the name really stuck. And before we knew it, we had a brand on our hands. And so we figured we had to just keep the title. Um, and Ellen retired from guide writing uh, after the 2019 municipal election, but I've kept it going by myself. Um, and the name is just, it's recognizable. People like it. It seems to fit the style of what people are looking for from the guide. And so I've kept it around. I want to quote Stephanie's primary election guide entry for a Cook County board race. Seems like nary a day goes by when some slimy schmuck isn't getting indicted on federal charges for some sort of corruption. And the 8th District brings us a twofer. This reminds me a little bit of, of uh, the late Mike Royko's pre-election roundup columns. Um, was Royko an inspiration? Who else has inspired what you do and the way you do it? Royko was not an inspiration, uh, although maybe he'll have to be uh, in the future. Maybe I have to go back and, and dig up some of his old stuff. Uh, you know, I think really the inspiration for the writing for Girl, I guess, it comes from two places. One, it comes from Jewish comedy uh, and the way that Jews commune with each other really by complaining and by complaining in very, very plain terms. Uh, you know, if it, we're, we're going to say what we feel. We're going to say what we think. Um, and the other is from the people, from progressives, from leftists, from folks that you find every single day on the street. The point of Girl, I guess, and the point of the style of Girl, I guess, is to talk politics to people the way that they would talk about it amongst themselves. One of the the big guiding factors behind Girl, I guess, is that politicians and politics and even a lot of political reporting takes politicians so seriously, so, so seriously, you know, sees them as these people who occupy the halls of power and have to be talked about as such. But that's not how politicians are talked about on the street. You know, if you walk down the street in Chicago and somebody really hates their alderman, they're going to tell you they really hate their alderman. And they're going to tell you pretty specifically what they think about that alderman. Uh, and that's what the that's what the guide is really trying to bring to people is I want to meet people where they're at discursively and not mince words. You know, if I think somebody running for office is a slimy fuckface, I'm going to call them a slimy fuckface because there's no reason not to. People need to have strident and strong opinions about the people running for public office because those people are accountable to us. Um, and we need to be able to be honest and open about our opinions of incumbent and hopeful electeds. Or there's no point in talking about them. An expert in judicial election analysis, Albert Klump, concludes that your recommendations influenced roughly 6% of the primary vote for judges. And I'm quoting here, an impressive achievement for an individual. How does that happen? You know, I think it's young people, it's progressives, it's leftists, it's LGBTQ people, it's all sorts of different demographics who are looking for ways to get involved in politics and who know that voting is important, but don't want to do the legwork themselves because they don't care that much about the system. These are people who have been betrayed by government. These are people who have been lied to by elected officials. But these are people who are very engaged politically and very intelligent politically. And so folks know, you know voting is a tool in our toolbox. We've, we, may, we have to use all the tools in our toolbox if we want to see the liberated society that we're all striving to work towards. Um, but these are not folks who are going to sit down and research every candidate on their ballot for an hour at a time. 
at all. They're not folks who are invested that much in the in the candidates or in the system. So girl, I guess, does that work for them? Um, and it's it's spread and it's spread and it's spread. Um, and I think six percent of all votes. And uh, my average that I've calculated is about eight percent race to race. So six percent of all, and then on some races a lot more, and then some races a lot less. Uh, there are some northwest side races where my estimate for my percentage of the vote for voters who read Girl, I guess, and then take those recommendations with them to the polls uh, is quite a bit higher. And some of the some of those races it really showed up in. Um, but I think it's that 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 analysis speaks to the fact that young people, the progressives, that leftists, the people who have been left out of politics, are hungry for political engagement and are hungry for political engagement and political education that doesn't lie to them and that doesn't mince words and that takes them seriously as people who want to be engaged, but also knows that nobody has the time to wade through a system that's intentionally set up to obfuscate and confuse people and stop people from being engaged unless that benefits the powers that be. Looking beyond November, what are you watching in Chicago city council campaigns and the race for mayor? AD? Too much to watch. I mean, the, the thing I've been watching kind of with a mix of astonishment and excitement because of all the storylines that are opening up is just the number of people that want to get out of the city council. Um, in the past month, we've had three longtime North Lakefront aldermen say they're either not running for re-election or effectively resigning next month. Uh, that's James Kappelman in the 46th Ward, where I live, Harry Osterman in the 48th, and Michelle Smith in the 43rd. That's Lincoln Park. Um, and I wrote a story for the Tribune also about how many aldermen were running for higher office in the primary, which I always view as like, you're trying to get out of council. And what I heard from a lot of folks who didn't want to speak on the record is just, it is not a fulfilling place to be anymore. Um, it's been really difficult to get things done. There's been a lot of dissension and very little uh, collaboration or cooperation. Uh, the council is very fractured. The ward remap made that a lot worse, um, which opens a lot of avenues for new types of folks to get in. And going back to that, we are in a post-Madigan, post-Berrios, post-Burke world. Um, we're going to see a lot more independents who were nobodies that nobody sent. And I'll be so interested to see what kind of um, priorities and storylines emerge and also where it leaves Mayor Lori Lightfoot in terms of allies on city council, because she did not have many going in. She has not developed that many. And she also hasn't like endorsed a bunch of people out in the wild uh, where she's like building additional coalitions or there might be like a Lightfoot slate of candidates coming in to run alongside her in 2023. It's, it's a time of huge change for the council. And I'm so interested to see what kinds of folks step up and who wants the job. You know, it's like a very thankless, difficult job because you have to be a, a legislator and you've also got to be the guy who makes sure everybody's trash gets picked up and their lights get fixed. I'm watching those same things. I'm watching these Northwest side vacancies, these North side vacancies with a lot of interest uh, because the folks that are already stepping up to run for these seats are the kind of people that we saw elected in droves in 2019. You know, we saw a number of socialists, a number of explicit leftists, a number of explicit progressives get elected to the council in 2019, really to join uh, Carlos Rosa, who was in large part on his own. 
uh, in that wing of the council. Now he's got a lot of friends on there. Um, and we're seeing more folks in that same mold step up to run for city council. We've got Muiz Bowani uh, in the 50th Ward. We've got Nick Ward, uh, who's gaining some steam now that Harry Osterman has announced his retirement in the 48th Ward. Uh, Angela Clay and Marianne Lalonde, who both ran in 2019, are up uh, in the 46th Ward. Uh, we've got Vico Alvarez, who's running to replace Ray Lopez, who's vacated his seat on the southwest side. We've got a lot of people um, who are representative of the communities that they come from and politically significantly left of where the previous alter people were. Um, this is a really, really big opportunity for progressives in this next cycle to show up and turn out and make sure that the city council is able to be as progressive a legislative body as the county board or as the general assembly. And at the same time, we've got a complete mess of a mayoral race. Uh, there have been a number of candidates that have already announced uh, only a couple of them can credibly say that they're more progressive than Lori Lightfoot. Cam Buckner was sort of the folk, the, the person that a lot of the people in my circles were looking to and saying, eh, well, he's not Lori. I guess I'll go with him. But Buckner's campaign really doesn't seem to be picking up that much steam. His fundraising has been really dismal. His personal issues in his past seem to have gotten the better of him. It sounds as if you think Lori's in trouble. I think Lori is in trouble of her own making uh, because the Lori Lightfoot that we got as mayor is not the Lori Lightfoot that ran for mayor. And I think people have really, really woken up to that. Um, you know, there's nothing that she promised to get done on the campaign trail has been really even attempted. Um, and she has governed as almost the polar opposite of the candidate that she ran as. Uh, and it's disappointed a lot of the people that were her strong, strong base. She got a lot of votes from people who believed her when she said that she was progressive, were excited about the fact that she was a black lesbian, um, and were really excited to see our city move in a different direction. But she's governed a lot more like a Mayor Daly, like a Mayor Emanuel, than she has like the person she ran as. Um, and so I do think Lori is in a lot of trouble. I think if Lori gets reelected, her saving grace will be a weak challenger field. Um, there's nobody that's really stepped up that has taken the public's eyes and that's taken the public's heart. And that has come away as the consensus challenger for Lori, the person that's going to take her to the runoff and beat her in the runoff. Now, we're really, really early. That person may still emerge. Um, but Lori is benefiting from a weak field right now. Uh, I do think that she has a really significant ceiling. Um, and I think that her ceiling is anywhere from 35%. Her floor could be anywhere as low as six. You know, we, we're seeing a mayor who is almost universally hated by every constituency. Um, and she doesn't have this, you know, old style Chicago machine boogeyman to run against in Tony Preckwinkle anymore. She's got a clean slate, slate of challengers and she's the incumbent. Um, I don't think people are going to line up behind a Rod Sawyer or a Ray Lopez, but people are going to line up behind somebody. Uh, and Lori has to watch out because she has not made any friends. I, I agree with Stephanie that the mayor at this time is benefiting from a slate of pretty weak challengers, but I also agree that it's super early and that Lori Lightfoot's victory didn't really consolidate until like the very, very end of those first few weeks or those first, those last few weeks before actual election day. It was like uh, the message that she had been talking about very early on in the campaign didn't really catch hold until we started seeing a bunch of uh, indictments. A lot of people joke that uh, she owes her mayoralty to Ed Burke uh, be getting into so much trouble and capitalizing on a lot of those messages at just the right time. Like the timing was just so perfect. And I agree that she also has done a very poor job of building bridges 
um, with almost anybody. There are very few people I can count as very strong allies of hers. She's lined up some endorsements, but I don't think they're uh, necessarily heavy hitter types that folks will perk up about. I am watching intently around late September for other folks to get in. I'm on the record as saying that AD's 2013 application letter to me at Rivet was possibly the best application letter I have ever received. I'm going to quote it here. It seems like a terrible time for journalism. Robots can write their own stories, print publications are collapsing, and the ever-expanding web makes it easy for an audience to click somewhere else. Regardless, AD wrote, I think it's the best time for a young journalist like me to start out. Okay, now you're a seasoned veteran of the business, AD. Was it back in 2013 the best time for young journalists to start out? I can't believe that was 2013. You and me both. My mouth is still open. God, that was, that was so long ago. Um, it, it was, in a way, a really good time to get in, especially if you were uh, super flexible. Uh, at the time... My boyfriend and I were just talking about this. I was working like three jobs. I was producing a podcast for NPR's former political editor, Ken Rudin, from my bedroom in South Bend, Indiana, like my childhood bedroom in South Bend, Indiana. Um, I was doing research for uh, like an offshoot of the Discovery Channel. And I was like, oh, this, uh, this startup in Chicago sounds fun. I really want to live in Chicago. And oh, look, all the people working for this startup have worked at all these amazing places in Chicago. How could this be a bad idea? So because of, because of the web and because so much was growing and changing, it was like a very good time as a young journalist in particular to get in, in part because we were so cheap <laughs> and in part because we were coming out of college where all of our journalism professors were telling us, you've got to be a little bit good at everything to get a job anywhere. Um, I all of my friends of a like age that are still in journalism, uh, our philosophy has kind of been like, do what it takes to survive. Um, I'm a, a radio person at heart that has somehow ended up in print in part because I was like, got to stay flexible. If they think I'm a good enough writer to write, I'm happy to do it for them as long as I get to keep living and working and covering Chicago politics. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it was a good time to get in. I had an insane amount of opportunities and did a lot of learning just because there, there were things like rivet that were startups popping up left and right. And then I went to go work for another startup at the time, Alder track that is also still going from years and years ago. So now yes, that now the daily a, line, correct? Now the daily right. line. Yeah. Well, is it still a good time for young journalists to start out? Do you think? <sighs> I don't know. What do you, Charlie, I want to know your thoughts. Cause you like, you interact with a range of folks. Like, are the kids coming out of J school still like starry eyed and excited? Or do you think they're more like grizzled coming out of journalism school straight away? Because all they've been hearing since they were kids is journalism is dying. You're closer to that scene than I am at this point, AD. But my sense is that those who are in journalism school at this point are serious about it because they have heard people of previous generations talk about what a lousy profession it is. Um, so I, I still look for great things from those who are 
as you were back in 2013, just just getting ready to enter the professional journalism market for, for real. I think for those who are committed to it, it's still a great time for all the reasons that were true back in 2013. The, the opportunities to start your own thing, the opportunities to um, try a lot of different things all within one job or all from your bedroom, wherever your bedroom happens to be. I think they're all still there. Um, I'm as long as we're on the subject, Stephanie and Sheila, what do you think? Is it still a good time for people to get into the media? Stephanie, let's start with you. Well, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert on this because I'm not a journalist by trade. Um, but I have been encouraged to think of myself, uh, as a citizen journalist by a lot of folks who are, uh, close to me and a lot of folks who engage a lot with girl, I guess. Um, and I think that there's this fascinating opportunity in this moment that we have right now for, traditional media, traditional print journalism, um, and the way that traditional journalists have moved online uh, to be in just beautiful, transformative symbiosis with citizen journalists and with young people creating their own content. Um, and you know, in particular in Chicago and across the country, uh, a well of voter guides that are springing up uh, all across the country right now. And you know, there's a there's this wonderful opportunity for us to all work together to bring information that people really need to know to the you know to the public, however they can get it, whether that's through a newspaper or an online magazine or a blog or a podcast or a really long Google Doc. Um, I think I don't know whether it's a good time to be in media or be a journalist, but it's certainly a good time to be in public education. Well, I don't think I can remember a better time that. Um that's been available for people who want to become journalists, but perhaps more importantly, people who want to understand journalism and their own role in it, how to keep the powerful accountable, but also how to keep journalists accountable. And what impresses me is the number of organizations, not only in our communities here in the Chicago area, but beyond that are finding the funding to allow them to help train people in ways that journalists in some respects thought was all ours. No one else needs to know, you know, how we do this needs to understand it. It's a secret. It's not a secret anymore. It's not going to be a secret again for quite a while. And I find that exciting. Stephanie and I share something in common. We both began our college careers in a hotbed of student let's say, innovation, founded uh, in 1971, Unit 1 in the Allen Hall dorm at the University of Illinois. Stephanie, how did that and your U of I experience in general shape your view of politics? Oh, gosh, we're really going back now. Um, you know, I think it was a really interesting time for me in Allen Hall and, and in, uh, in Unit 1. Um, I had a good time. I don't regret living there at all. You know, I met a lot of friends there that I still have today. It was a really unique experience for me because I was a young person who was just coming out as a lesbian, who was just coming out as trans. I hadn't known that I was queer or trans before I went to college. Um, and so living in this like gender mismatched dorm situation as a young person who was just starting to find herself, um, was a really interesting experience for me. You know, I think it probably would have been a lot worse had I been anywhere besides Allen Hall and besides Unit 1 at the University of Illinois. Um, but, you know, I think 
the dorm itself didn't shape my politics as much as the climate at the university did. There was nothing there for people like me at the time. Uh, and so everything that happened uh, for trans people on that campus, I had to do myself. Uh, and I had to really force myself to build the communities that I wanted to see because those communities either didn't exist or existed for people who were sort of like me, but not really like me. Um, but growing as a human and, and finding myself in that kind of progressive, uh, wonky artistic incubator was a, an overwhelmingly positive experience. You know, I think, uh, it was a great place to live. Um, if I was in college now, I'd do it all over again. But, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways I got the traditional unit one experience because here I am as a rabble rouser today, but I also didn't get that experience because of the ways in which gender affirming housing, uh, was not a thing for trans people at the university of Illinois at that time. Uh, but it does speak volumes to unit one's continued existence that the LGBTQ floor uh, in university housing is located in Allen Hall right now. Uh, and that was something that my student organizations that I built when I was there uh, fought for and won um, was trans-affirming housing, LGBTQ-specific housing. And that's housed in Allen Hall. Eddie, do you review voter guides like Stephanie's in your work? Uh, yes. Not every single cycle, in part because I'm too busy trying to cover every race in as much depth as I can. And also, this year was so odd because I was off at the University of Chicago doing like a, a, some professional development for three solid months and missed so much of the primary. But yes, I love reading them. It provides me with storylines that are more fleshed out because Stephanie has her, her ear deeper to the ground in progressive networks that I don't. Um, and it's fun to see uh, what chatter emerges from them. And I'm so, so glad that so many guides are emerging for judicial candidates which gets such low turnout. Anything that encourages people to vote down ballot uh, is so valuable to me. And uh, Injustice Watch's judicial guide is so valuable, so so digestible, so easy to read. And I think a lot of news organizations could learn from um, creating shortcuts for voters, um, short of sharing very long Q and A's that editorial boards put together. Um, I think they're they're really valuable for engagement and um, and and guiding folks and helping people figure out what what matters to them and what doesn't and hopefully gets gets folks to read more news so they can find out what is what's driving some controversies that are making or breaking certain candidates. And Stephanie, how much does reporting by the Tribune and Sun Times and other media influence your own recommendations? You know, I think it's not that traditional media influences the recommendations. It's that it gives me the context in which to make them. Um, so much of what I do at Girl, I guess, is taking the reporting that comes from traditional media outlets and synthesizing it into something that people can digest without having to subscribe to all the newspapers, um, without having to have the access and the time to sit down and actually read all the articles. There's a lot of stuff that I would never be able to find out on my own that journalists who have access to those spaces uh, or who even have something just as simple as a press pass can get a lot more easily than I can. And that's information that is really crucial to me to see the full picture of an election or to see the full picture of a candidate. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not really recalling off the top of my head any particular article that made or broke an endorsement for me or any particular candidate whose fate was, you know, lifted or condemned 
by traditional media for me, but I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do without that traditional journalism and without access to it. Um, and which goes back to what I said before about the symbiosis is folks who do the kind of work that I do, who write these voter guides, who do more citizen journalism, rely on our networks and having our ear to the ground in the community. But we also rely on journalists who write stories like AD does and who, you know, do reporting, uh, like the folks at the Tribune and the Sun-Times do. I was so sad to see this cycle that the Sun-Times wasn't doing their voter guide uh, and their candidate reviews uh, because they've moved to a, a nonprofit model. I heavily relied on the Sun-Times coverage uh, for the nitty-gritty details of the candidates because you weren't able to find that stuff anywhere else unless you knew those candidates or their team personally. Um, and so that, that kind of information is really, really important uh, for folks like myself and for the average voter just trying to make a decision. Closing thoughts, Charlie. Well, I'm so proud to have met A.D. early in her journalistic journey, an impressive journey it is, and uh, I'm looking forward to her work as she settles in at the Chicago Tribune. And I'm so happy that uh, producer Jesse turned me on to Stephanie's Progressive Voter Guide, which even when I disagreed with her, made planning my vote a lot more fun. Closing thoughts from you, Sheila? A number of people asked me to recommend voting guides to them during the most recent primaries. The Golden Shrugs that I've now been introduced to seal the deal, and I'll be adding Stephanie's guide to my list for the upcoming fall election. Closing thoughts, A.D.? Keep reading and supporting local news. Uh, we need you to hold us accountable. We need you to give us tips. We need you to help people like Stephanie put together guides that make you more informed and excited about participating in this democracy. Please, please, please support local news. Closing thoughts, Stephanie. Read voter guides. If you don't like the voter guides that are out there, write your own. It's not that hard. People figure out how to do it. Um, ask people who write them uh, if we're willing to share tips and tricks. I generally am. Uh, Girl, I guess, is currently being spun off in four different cities. Uh, and you know, I'm more than happy to share what I know because Girl, I guess, isn't about my own political access. It's about public education and it's about political education and it's about getting information into the hands of voters so they can make decisions. Um, Charlie, Sheila, I'm so uh, so grateful that y'all are, are fans of the guide now. Um, and yeah, I'm, you know, for, for everybody out there, just make sure that you keep your eyes open, make sure that you keep your ears open and make sure that you remember that even if you don't think it counts, your vote counts. And it's important to hit the polls. It's important to do everything that you can to create the world that we want to live in. Voting is just one tool in the toolbox, but it's a tool we have to make use of every single time. Our guests on this edition of Chicago Media Talks, recorded July 25th, 2022, have been Girl I Guess Progressive Voter Guide creator Stephanie Scora and Tribune reporter A.D. Quick. A.D.'s on Twitter at A.D. underscore Q-U-I-G. You can reach Stephanie on Instagram at Stephanie Scora, that's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-S-K-O-R-A. You can find Sheila via email at Sheila at Rivet360.com. And you can join me for a roundup of the news weekday mornings at ChicagoPublicSquare.com. I'm Charlie Meyerson. For Sheila Solomon, producers Rob LaFrance and Jesse Batend, and everyone at Rivet360, thanks for listening to Chicago Media Talks. <laughs>